Welcome to Start Now, a conversational podcast which discusses topical issues designed to get people to think about the challenges occurring in the world around us and how each of us can be a part of positive, transformative change. Start Now is meant to be informative and engaging while encouraging and motivating people to start where they are and with the resources they have to make a difference in their communities and in the worlds around them. Let's start now. Welcome, everybody. We are so excited that you have joined us for this episode of Start Now. In this episode, we will be continuing our discussion on America's identity and talking about some policies that really can move our nation forward in unity and equity. But first, introductions. Today, we are joined by some phenomenal community leaders and advocates in their profession. My very first one, this is somebody that I adore so much, and I'm honored and blessed to call her a mentor and a friend, the Honorable Nina Ashinafi Richardson. Judge Richardson has served as a Leon County judge in Florida's Second Judicial Circuit since 2008. As the first Ethiopian American judge in the United States and the first African American to be elected president of the Tallahassee Women Lawyers Association, the Tallahassee Bar Association, and in the Stafford Inns of Court, Judge Richardson has been recognized locally and throughout the state of Florida for her dedicated service to her community and the legal profession, where she is the recipient of numerous awards and distinguished honors. Next, we have State Senator Dwight Bullard. Dwight possesses extensive background in education and community activism, serving in both the Florida House of Representatives and the Florida Senate for an eight-year period period, he is well-versed in creating and promoting policies which serve to strengthen the communities and bring forth equitable opportunities. He currently serves as a political advisor for Florida Rising, as well as the president of the South Dade NAACP. Throughout his work, Senator Bullard looks to uplift people in ways that makes them the masters of their own destiny, where he continuously strives to amplify the voices of those often unheard. Welcome, Senator Bullard. Next, we have the amazing Dr. Cicely Walker Brantley. Dr. Cicely is a college educator and empowerment speaker and a certified family educator and a licensed psychotherapist in her own private practice, CWB Psychotherapy and Empowerment LLC. Next, we have my friend, Mr. Mutaki Akbar. Attorney Akbar practices in the areas of criminal defense, personal injury law, and civil rights. As the managing partner of Akbar Law Firm, Mutaki is heavily involved in community and civil organizations where he serves on numerous boards. His continuous investments in his local community have contributed to its increased growth and development, where he is highly recognized among community residents and leaders alike. Next, we have Sergeant Mike Wallace. Serving with the Leon County Sheriff's Office since 2015, Sergeant Mike Wallace is dedicated to community and is a leader where he serves as a mentor and advocate and a friend. Recognized for his outstanding service, he was awarded LCSO's Distinguished Deputy of the Year honor in 2016 and 2019. Prior to his promotion, he served with LCSO Community Relations Team, where he helped build and strengthen law enforcement ties within his community between law enforcement officers and residents. Serving in a civil volunteer capacity, Sergeant Mike Wallace is also a strong advocate for the Special Olympics. Next, we have Mr. Jason Warner. Now, we all know that Atlanta is home to some phenomenal rock star community organizers 
advisors, and Jason is part of that group. As a graduate of Florida A&M University, holding academic degrees in public relations and marketing, Jason uses his skills in crisis communication management to assist state agencies and companies throughout Georgia. A dynamic role model, Jason is heavily involved in community building and business initiatives, which serve to strengthen and empower marginalized and underserved communities. Welcome, everybody. Again, we are so glad that you have joined us for this episode. So, President Biden, in his inaugural speech, spoke on the goal of unifying the nation, a nation that has been torn apart throughout this past administration and over the past years through divisive words, actions, talk, behavior, etc. Now, many advocates agree that you can't begin to properly heal a nation without first addressing the underlying issues, which continue to spread divisive views, thoughts, and beliefs in other systems of and patterns of behavior. Throughout our conversation today, we'll be discussing ways that we can really move towards a place of equity and unity within our community, state, and nation. Now, I want us to make a distinguishment because I know that we'll be using the words equity and equality today, and some people don't know, oh, they sound very similar, but there is a difference. So when we talk about equality, equality is the state of systems being the same in size, degree, or quantity, whereas equity is the state of things being fair, impartial, and just. And so a quick illustration that I want to share is one of an apple tree. So if you imagine an apple tree leaning over to the left, you have a children on, a child on one side and a child on another side. Now, both children are trying to grab an apple. Obviously, the one that's on the left side tree is a little bit closer, but still can't quite reach. Equality would be if we give both those children a ladder, the same size ladder. So whereas the child on the left can now reach the apple, the child on the right is still disadvantaged and still can't reach the apple. Equity says, that we give the child on the left a ladder where he can reach and the child on the right a taller ladder where he can also reach so both children have an opportunity to grab the apple. Now, when we take a step further, justice would be where they get their appropriate size ladder to reach the apple, but you also straighten that tree. So they have the same opportunities and advantages to both be able to reach that apple. And so I'm hoping that this illustration will help guide our conversation today as we're talking about really great policy areas and changes. And so when we talk about these areas, we're really going to be looking at four key areas, education, criminal justice, law enforcement, policing, and community building. So with that, I would like to start with our, our basic questions. And I want to start with Dr. Cicely and Senator Bullard. So you all have extensive backgrounds in education. And we know that when individuals learn something, they really learn it in two places. They learn it in their home and learn they learn it in school. And so can you begin our discussion and talk about what is being taught in the schools right now and how important the educational system is in breaking down divisive barriers and discriminatory ideology. Senator Bullard, can we start with you? Sure thing. Uh, well, the, the, the school system at its best is uh, a tremendous exper uh, experiment in the notion of equality. And thank you for creating that illustration that if all children are starting off uh, at the same space, uh, all things being equal, then uh, upon their graduation, they should have achieved the same goal. What it does not do efficiently or effectively in many cases is address gross inequities that exist in our society. The 
fact that uh, children are not uh, oftentimes starting at the same place from a multitude of standpoints, whether that be economic, whether that be social, whether that be educational in terms of, you know, number of words learned before the age of four, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but one of the things, and I know Dr. Siss is going to touch uh, a lot on the policy side of it. One of the things that I find troubling, of course, is the failure to address the economic inequity, right? The, the way in which we fund schools is oftentimes equality-based, meaning that each school gets a, a portion, the same amount of money to, in effect, try to accomplish the same goals. But I'll give you an example of something here in Miami. We have a multitude of uh, performing arts programs. So you take a school like uh, New World School of Performing Arts, which is given a certain amount of money. But then addition, in addition to that, the University of Florida provides funding to that, to that institution, as well as Miami-Dade College to create a round, robust uh, ideological framework for performing arts-based concept in which you have these creatives learning all those different things. On the flip side, you take a school like Miami Northwestern. Miami Northwestern is given an allotment of money, but unfortunately, in comparison to other schools, they have to hire an, uh, an upwards of 33 security guards, whereas uh, New World School the arts has less than than 10 security guards for, for that purpose. So you're taking inequitable allotments of money because you have supplemental dollars coming into the performing arts space, uh, which is supported through philanthropy. And you have another school that is wholly reliant on the, the amount of money that's given to it. Um, and they're not able to use it in the same effective way because they're trying to deal with issues of school-based violence and, and some of the more pervasive issues. But then people look at them and say, well, you know, you got the same amount of money. So what's the, we have to understand that there are other needs that, that have to be addressed. So I'll turn it over to my, my colleague, Dr. Cicely. Thank you. Just to piggyback a little bit on what you just said, so much of the funding also is based on like the homeowner taxes that are generated in each area. So if you look at the different levels of affluence that there are in, you know, so many. One of the things I know about Leon County in particular is that it is one of the most segregated areas. And so having said that, when you look on the north side of Tallahassee and you compare the homeowner taxes that would be collected there versus what's going to be collected on the south side, it's just unreasonable to expect that to be in any way equitable as it relates to our, to our children and the way that they're being educated and the resources they have access to. So when you take that into consideration, Consideration and you know, speaking of the home environment, when you say so much of what is learned, it's either in the school system or in the homes. When you are living in a neighborhood or in a community where your basic needs aren't met, where safety issues are not fully addressed, where you may not have clean water, where you may be in an area that is over concentrated and, and polluted types of, of, of concentration, you cannot expect those children to come into the school system on a level playing field. So those are also areas where we, we really have to do a better job of bringing our children to a place of, you know, just treatment as it relates to their education. Because if it's not, if they're starting out without their basic needs met, we can't expect them to achieve on the level of their peers who have so much more affluence and advantage. I want to say something that my husband and I have done in this area is to, well, first, my husband and I live on the south side of our community, and our firstborn was graduated from Fairview Middle School, one of the south side schools, and Rickards High School, one of the south side schools. And something that we have been cheerleaders for is for 
you know, the African-American community to get involved in its own schools, uh, to get involved in their, in our own backyard. I live in that backyard and we, my husband and I are, are cheerleaders for whether your child goes to the Southside schools or not to know what's happening in your own backyard, to get involved. Uh, we were very involved with the, with the parent organization, helping our community schools, our neighborhood schools get resources they need, showing up at school board meetings, talking to our school board representatives, our county commissioners, our city commissioners. So one of the points that we have seen positive outcomes is to, again, mobilize the South Side neighborhoods with community activism within our own neighborhoods to get more involved. Um, I used to work for a teachers association and you'd be surprised how many teachers would tell me, I don't hear from the parents. I reach out to them. I say, we need this, we need that. I need this in my school. The parents and the, again, the neighborhood, we have to care about our own. We have to get involved in our own neighborhoods and in our own schools and do more. Yes, it should be at a bigger level, but I think it has to also start from community and neighborhood engagement. And, and and I believe in community activism. And all of us are here because of our passion for that. Um, but it has to come from the individual self as well. We can't rely on others to help us. We must also step in and help ourselves. Thank you so much, Judge Ashnafi, for providing those words of wisdom, because we're definitely going to talk about involvement a little bit later. So thank you so mm -hmm. much for bringing that up. Dr. Mm -hmm. Sisley, if I can go back to you real quick. Thank you again for talking about the basic needs, because when we talk about a starting point, obviously we have to know where we are now to know where we want to go and where we're heading, you know? And so I always like to use the example of a GPS. Anytime you open the GPS on your phone, it always asks you two questions, your starting location and your destination. And so thank you so much, Senator Bullard and Dr. Sisley for kicking off the conversation on our education and where we are now. I would like to move back to uh, Judge Ashinafi and Attorney Akbar and talk a little bit about the criminal justice system. And if you can share with us where where we are now with that and a little bit of the policies that um, you're seeing. The first thing I want to say is I would not be on this panel in the role that I am but for the community because I'm county court judge electing me. And here I am from East Africa with an ethnic name. I look different. I talk different. Um, my cultural background is is I'm American, but I also have a cultural depth to me, you know, being raised by uh, an African father. And so I want to I want to acknowledge that, I, you know, my community voted for someone who, who's African-American and who's ethnic and who's, you know, I had a lot of people saying, Nina, don't even run because you, who is going to vote for you in Tallahassee, Florida? I mean, it's like, like Georgia. Thinking is not expanded yet, but guess what? In 2008, I did. Um, I was on the same uh, ballot as President uh, Barack Obama, and I rode the coattails of his election. And the and so I feel very grateful for that, that, that my community Black and white supported me when I had two white male opponents. And so I want to say there's progress, but I also want to add that it's important that we get involved in who we elect on the bench. If you want criminal justice system to be an equal playing field for all people, then, then diversity is important on the bench. I certainly represent the electorate putting a brown person there. So I want to encourage that. I know that the last couple of years have shown us how important diversity is and how important putting people that look like us on the bench and in 
offices. Certainly Senator Bullitt is, is here. Look at us. I mean, look at brown people who are standing on the shoulders of so many before us who paved the way for us to be where we are. And we in turn have to pay that forward and never forget, especially to vote. Attorney Akbar, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Judge. For that. And, and that's a good starting point as far as like where we are, because I think where we are right now it is in transition and it's in, tra it's in transition because of the community. So one of the things that we've done in Leon County has been encouraging a diverse bench. And so that's been putting pressure on the government and also encouraging people in the community to run for those seats. And what we're seeing with the diverse bench is a different mentality on that bench. It has always been law and order, lock them up, throw away the key. And what we are learning and what we're seeing now is that those policies just don't work. When people go in, in jail or go to prison or on significant probation and all of those things, if we're not addressing underlying issues, then we'll always end up in just, it's just a cycle um, and it's a warehousing and it just doesn't work. So where, where, what we see now is that transition. What we see now that we have to address mental health issues. We have to address drug abuse issues. Uh, we have to address those fundamental things. So we're realizing now that education plays a big role. So when we talk about education, like all of these things work together. So now, like like we said, like when we encourage a diverse bench and when we encourage um, people to think differently, then that changes the landscape of, of how we handle those people that come through the system. So I see a change. We're definitely not where we, where we need to be, but, but I I do see a, a change in mentality when it comes down to the criminal justice system. I want to add, Attorney Akbar reminded me to, points reminded me of this, and I want to share it. On the point of the change of not incarcerating individuals right out of the gate, one positive change was a rethinking of what happens at first appearance. In our circuit and across the state, uh, we now have admin, a new administrative order that requires the first appearance judge to not default to putting someone in jail, but to actually have a more thoughtful and meaningful inquiry about that person, regardless of the offense. The The case law is let the person have their liberty first and ask them, do you have an ability to pay this bond amount? How long have you lived in this community? Are you going to be a flight risk? Are you going to show up for court? And it has been a very strong change, and it's even coming from the chief judge. And that has been a difference just in the time that I've been on the bench since uh, 2008. And I know I see Mr. Akbar often at first appearance. And that right out of the gate is something I wanted to share as a positive change on my time. And I know Mr. Akbar's time. And that is a huge difference that we're seeing. People are not just getting sent automatically to uh, jail right from first appearance. There's a pressure actually against doing that. COVID has certainly added to that because of the safety concern. Now the jail is putting pressure on us on the bench to, you know, really think twice before putting someone in jail because of the added a safety concern. We don't want individuals to get sick while they're incarcerated. Thank you so much, Judge Ashinaki, for sharing that. Those are amazing points. And I'm glad that you were able to share with us. Two things that we know go hand in hand, obviously, the criminal justice system and law enforcement and policing. So Sergeant Mike Wallace, if I can move to you now, can you talk to us a little bit about some things that you're seeing in law enforcement and policing as far as policies, practices. What is the current state on law enforcement and policing from your standpoint profession? Well, I tell you, one, thank you for having me. I, I feel honored to be in, in the room with such uh, 
powerfully awesome people. Um, Honored to have you. <laughs> I am. Those of us here in Leon County, we have two. We have two narratives that we that are a reality. One's a national narrative, and one's a local narrative. And so, I don't think we would do it justice to separate the two. Our local narrative is that seventy-five percent of the voters re-elected the first African American sheriff, the chief law enforcement officer of Leon County the capital city of Florida, to a second term, mm-hmm. 75% of the voters, a black man to share, 75% of the voters. That's not black folks. That's Leon County folks. That's black folks. That's brown. That's folks understanding that we have a great law enforcement executive as our sheriff. The national narrative, however, is way far left of that. And our national narrative is very sad. From a, a thirty my 32 years in, in law enforcement, our national narrative is sad. And even as a career law enforcement, enforcement officer. Once I get outside of Leon County and my adult children that live outside of Leon County, I'm very afraid for them and what law enforcement looks like across the country. But I will say here, let's the local narrative and some of the things being in concert with what our court system's working with, we no longer have a jail. We have a detention facility that is keyed up on reunifying people in the community. If we do have to, if we have to house you, then the expectation is that we're going to give you opportunities to leave the detention facilities with some skills that are usable. Because at the end of the day, if you had no skills, we hold you for 11 months, 11 and a half months, and then release you, you're going to still have no skills when you return to the community. So the sheriff's vision is to give people skills to reunify. And we're we're calling that pathways. And so there are pathways to, if a person has a strong desire, pathways to reunify into the community. We also, one of the things that our now Vice President Kamala Harris did when she was in California, one of the great programs that she had that people don't give her credit for is the Back on Track program. The sheriff had us institute the Back on Track program here locally three years ago. And that's getting engaged in some of our youthful offenders and giving some of those opportunity to engage with law enforcement on a level that we can help mentor them through and and have seen the opportunity another way to maybe a life of crime or a life of, of being on the other side of the law. And so as what I see for what we're doing very aggressively locally and spending the last three and a half years of my career, rather aggressively going after being ingrained in our community is one, the 21st century, the Commission on 21st Century Policing, which was initiated by President Obama. We're the first, our first job is to get up every day, put on this uniform, and build trust and legitimacy in our community. That's our number one job. Our number two job is we are not warriors. We are guardians. We are guardians in our community. And the Leon County Sheriff's Office in our warrior ethos is that we are servants. We are true servants. And if anyone in our community is not being served, then we have failed in our, in our ethos to not only ourselves, but our community. So our future is bright. Our community is bright. And we're hoping that it can become infected and catch on to the communities around us. But I think the relationships, quite honestly, the relationships between our sheriff and the other arms of of the criminal justice system, it has been absolutely wonderful. And I think our citizens are going to be the the proud recipients of of some great relationships. Right. And thank you so much for sharing that. I know that one of Sheriff McNeil's main platforms is all in. And so through that campaign, I know he really works to strengthen this community. And so all throughout the conversations that we've 
we've had through education, through criminal justice, and through law enforcement policing, one word has continued through all three of those areas in its community. So I'd like to shift into Senator Bullard and Jason and talk about some community policies. What are you seeing? Maybe some best practices, some current policies that are working right now. And then just what are, talk to us a little bit about some community initiatives that you're seeing. Jason, can we start with you? Awesome. Thank you all again. I'm honored, as uh, Sergeant Mike said, to be on this panel with you all. You know, one of the things when you talk about community, and I'll start with my shirt, right? So my shirt says, you can't solve a problem with the same mindset that you used to create it, right? Albert Einstein. And part of it is we have to shift mindset and we have to start with the beginning, right? So definition of community is it, it talks about people with common interests being in a particular area. But if you go down even further, it talks about where people have joint ownership and participation. Judge Ashtanafi, she talked about engagement with the school system and different things like that. And part of that process is participation and action, right? You can't just sit by and say, no, we have a judge that looks like us. We have a sheriff that looks like us. We really have to participate in that process. And that's where the ownership comes in. And the last part, when we talk about ownership, I mean, especially for black and brown community, we have to understand that America is built on capitalism. America is built on green, right? Black, brown, white, indifferent. If you don't have green at the table, you are not at the table. If seven efforts are on here, right? Let's say we're all going to start a business together. And for us to all come in here, we all need $5,000. And the six of you all come with your $5,000. And I come and I say, I just have some ideas. Guess what? I don't have any leverage at this table. As a community, we have to understand our leverage. We can't continue to just ask and ask and ask and think it's going to change. We have to participate in the process and also bring some leverage to this negotiating table. We can't negotiate just because, oh, we think that the community just wants to be humanistic and love everyone. This is not how this community was built. This is not how this country was built. We just really have to shift our mindset as we engage in community. But show up, participate, don't just vote. Show up to your city council meetings, show up to your school board meetings, show up to your school. I have the privilege of being a past president of PTA. I also now serve on the student governance council at the high school and sit on the superintendent's council here in Fulton County. But you have to participate if you want change. And Senator Bullard, um, through your experience in the Florida House of Representatives and the Florida Senate, what are some policies that you're currently seeing that are on the books, but maybe aren't being enacted that should be enacted and should be enforced? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? You know, we oftentimes talk about the notion of the need for for better policy. What I would argue is that we have compelling policy on the books already, but it's just not being enforced and initiated by the kinds of folks that we want. So it kind of goes, ties into what Jason was talking about in terms of uh, what are the pressure points that we as community have to apply and uh, to make sure that certain things are being enforced. You look at something like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? Essential components of that around access to public works, making sure people are, are, are not mistreated in that regard, but we're still trying to fight that fight. You still have attorneys like Brother Akbar who have to go out here and get cities and counties and states to reinforce these policies that are already on the books, primarily because we have not eradicated some of the myths and legends around racism. And we, But we have to acknowledge, to, to Jason's point around going back to the beginning, it's like Sankofa, right? You, you, you have to know your history in order to move 
forward, you know, it's oftentimes challenging communities that people too often say, well, you know, let's let's not look at racist policies of the past. Let's only look forward. And it's like, we can't do that. We have to be mindful of the fact that there are consistent and persistent problems of people choosing to put blinders on to the racist acts and actions and tactics and traits that they've practiced in the past. Otherwise, it continues to happen. Like we're seeing a resegregation of school in the modern form, but this time, instead of just on race, it's around class. So we have to eradicate that problem. We can't allow that to happen, but Brown v. Board's already been passed. So it takes attorneys, it takes community to now say, we're not going to allow ourselves to fall back into the trappings that led to Brown v. Board in 1954, as we're seeing them happen in 2020. We're seeing discriminatory practices, you know, within the restaurant space where certain restaurants are still saying we're not going to be serving, quote unquote, those kinds of people. And so if we know that the 64 Act prohibits discriminatory practices based on race or orientation or things of that nature, again, we have to, as community as law enforcement, as legal practitioners, uh, reinforce the fact that these things exist and not allow the regression of the progress that our forebears have made in the past. So in, in summation, that's just it, is that we have to be diligent about the idea that we already have policies in place, but we can't just be okay with certain people deciding for us that these policies are not going to be enforced. And that's a very valid point too. So thank you for that. I want to uh, touch on that for a second because like you were saying with the legal profession, so Judge Ashinafi, Attorney Akbar, Sergeant Mike, there's only so much that individuals can do in a certain area. It's kind of like that statement, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So Dr. Sisley, can you talk to us a little bit about current behavior patterns? So, I mean, obviously there's only certain things that these professions can do to help promote change, but at some point it starts with that individual themselves. And so Mm -hmm. what are some current behaviors or current behavior patterns that you're seeing that are really preventing progress towards unity? Wow, that's a a good question. I want to go back a little bit to what Jason mentioned about the shift that needs to happen. In addition to my my current role as a a college level educator, I spent almost 10 years in K-12 education um, here in Leon County as well. So I saw firsthand some of the judgmental attitudes. I'm I'm just going to be very, very frank that existed and the assumptions that were often made about parents or others who may not have been as uh, supportive as as would be ideal. And I also was able to, um, for some of the years I was the school system, I was a counselor. So I was able to talk with some parents and some of the families about reasons why they weren't as supportive and present and the barriers that that were in place. And for some of them, they shared intergenerational experiences that were that were negative, you know, as it relates to the school system. So it kind of goes back to some of what uh, Senator uh, Bullard was saying, we can't ignore the history when we are making these, um, you know, when when we talk about policy, and when we talk about why things aren't working, when there's something in place to to support a group of people, we have to realize that it can take um, a lot more effort, a lot more kind of pulling some taking some hands and pulling them forward and saying, this may be a little different for, for you, but that difference doesn't mean that you're less than that difference doesn't mean that you don't belong here. You know, we talked about equity and we talk a lot about inclusion in those things. However, if a person still doesn't feel like they belong because maybe they speak differently or maybe they didn't have that positive experience in the educa- in their own educational experience, 
it's that may be a barrier to prevent them from coming. So I just I want to I guess really really say as it relates to behaviors and mental health you know uh, functions that people are dealing with, there are so many shifts that need to take place in mindsets. There are so many shifts that need to take place in normalizing behaviors that have previously been seen as foreign or not as present. So I hope I answered the question a little bit. It's just the wheels really got turning when you asked that and there was so much that I could have said. So I'll stop there. You know, it's, it's interesting, Dr. Cicely. I, I appreciate that you said that because one of the things, and, and I've been fortunate to talk around the country on a race and equity and part of it is, is people are products of their environment, right? Exactly. Um, that's good, bad, or indifferent. But you're, you, a lot of times we only look from the lens of our own perspective, right? So all of us on this call are, are educated, have been exposed to a number of things, right? So when we talk about race, class, equity, and different things like that, we can speak from a different lens. When you talked about the, the, the parents in school, Right. So I, I remember uh, folks coming up to us when I was a PTA president and asking, well, why are these parents involved? Well, you are a parent that's involved because you have the time and the socioeconomic means to be involved. Mm -hmm. But if this other parent here is trying to just work two and three jobs to keep the lights on, that's a different factor that we don't understand or they may not understand why they can't engage and pick up the phone and call the teacher and their mindset is focused on something different. So when we talk about understanding even privilege, right? If you grew up only seeing a certain uh, demographic, that's all you know. Our goal from a community building is, a, is to be able to expose people to different walks of life. Exposure and access equals success. And if we're not able to expose to the greater of these and the least of these all mm. at the same time, we will never get, gain progress because we don't understand the perspectives. You may not like law enforcement, but if you don't walk a, a day in, in Sergeant Mike's shoes, you won't understand the perspective when he wakes up and puts his, his shoes on just like everyone and tries to come home to his family every single day, what he goes through. You may say, you know what, I hate judges, but if you don't go and talk to Judge Nina and understand her perspective, her life experiences, you will never know the lens that she looks under. And I think we all have to try to look at through things in a different lens to gain growth. Yeah, exactly. And you brought up some very valid points, Jason, because even when you were talking about parents being involved in schools, and it may be because, you know, if they're come from a single parent home and that parent does have two or three jobs, you know, even transportation, if I don't have the transportation to get back and forth to my child's school, maybe they're having an open house at six o'clock at night, but maybe the buses stop running at seven o'clock. You know what? I'm going to be stuck at my child's school. You know, so there's a lot of different barriers, you you know, in, in opportunity toward access that just aren't in existence. But if they do exist, then it's getting those resources out there and letting people know that they exist. Because sometimes awareness is half the battle too, letting them know about the different resources that are available. And so I want to thank you all for talking to us about, you know, where we are now. Because again, going back to the GPS model, you have to know where you are now to know where you're going, right? And so I want to be able to shift our conversation into what needs to take place. Where do we need to get to. And so um, I want to start back with the education component. So with Senator Bullard and Dr. Sisley, when we talk about even implementing behavior change, you know, is it possible to put different policies, different curriculum in school that promote unity and equity? And, and where does the education system itself need to go? So I know that's a big question and it kind of encompasses a lot of areas. But Senator Bullard, if we could start with you. Sure thing. And in the spirit of analogies, I was thinking about this one. 
in the sense that in our current education funding model, the way it works is that if you're driving a car and one of those tires catches a nail, the education system then says, well, let's change all the tires. Like, that's how we do it. It's like, oh, well, you know, instead of addressing the idea that one tire caught a nail and all the other three could be brand new, but the education system says, that's it. You know, we, we don't want to play favorites. So even though we know that one tire caught the nail, we got to switch out all the tires, make them brand new so that everything can run effectively. But even in the midst of that, it still doesn't address the nail or the, the hazards on the road that caused that tire to catch a nail. And so to your point, what you raised was so critically important. So for instance, if you're having a challenge at a particular district or in a particular region with getting parent contact and parent outreach, then you can't look at that as a countywide problem. You have to look at that as a regional problem. And what are we doing or what is lacking in order to provide those things? And so what I would what I would offer up is that if you're looking at a, a situation where you're you're dealing with an issue of socioeconomic or an issue of latchkey kids or an issue of parents being unable to engage with their kids for a number of reasons, are they working double shifts or triple shifts? Are they finding themselves, you know, working downtown but having to commute back to the south side or back to, to another neighborhood, then that means that you need to make a precision investment and after-school programs, training programs, et cetera, for the children in that region. And the rest of the district has to be okay with that because they have to recognize that there is, in fact, a squeaky wheel that needs oil. Right. And that is that is the, the the condition that we have to change. But we're so caught up with, well, what about my child? And my thing is, like, if your child's got it, you have to acknowledge that your child's got it. Meaning that if you're able to buy your child the PS5s or the or the MacBooks or the or, or the great Wi-Fi, then you also have to acknowledge that there are children, that there are students out there that do not have that same level of access to those things. And if somebody's going to be able to compensate for that, you know what I mean? Meaning that if a school district then says that I, you know, I'm going to get you a, a Chromebook, which is by no means a MacBook, but I can, if I can get you a Chromebook to get you on the right path towards trying to get on the same playing field with this child who has the MacBook, then the greater society, or to Jason's point, the greater community has to recognize that we have to do that for the sum in order to better, better inform and better move the whole. So that's the key policy on the economic side that I think is important is that we have to start being okay with the fact that some of us have, but there are definitely some of us out there that are have nots and we want to address that issue. Right. Thank you. And Dr. Cicely, being a college educator and also having your own children that have gone through the K through 12 system, what are some policies or what are some changes that you think the education system needs to make as we move forward through this conversation? Wow. One of the first things that come to mind with uh, Senator Bullard mentioned the haves, you know, haves and have nots, that we know that some of our children just don't have the same access, the same resources. I know that when I was a part of the K-12 system and as um, a couple of my children still are, I know that there are limited numbers of folks who can actually go into the homes or see what is really happening as it relates to the needs that are being met within the home, the mental health needs that these students have. I think in Leon County, there's one school social worker per, I'm not sure how many schools, but it's it's definitely more than one or two, which in and of itself ne- makes it nearly impossible for those school uh, social workers to, to know exactly what's going on in the homes of our students and who needs what and how quickly we can get those needs met. So one of the things that I would love to see happen is there be more more access to mental health care, social work kinds of things being done that are going to help these families that are the ones that need more support, that don't have the access that the others have. I'd like to see mental health needs being met more specifically 
within the school system because we know that for some children, the needs that they're going to have met, even when we talk about meals that they need, many children are not even eating when they're not in school. So if they're not even having that basic need met, then we can guess that the mental health needs are not being met as well so that if we if we could have our school systems to divert more of the funding towards having those mental health needs met making sure that at school kids can be taken care of and they know that they can go and talk to someone who cares about their emotional well-being who cares about the fact that on the way to school this uh one day um this morning i saw they saw i don't know some type of conflict i once had a third grader come to me and say that on on their way to school, they had seen a body. I've never experienced anything like that. Can you know? And if we don't have people at school who care about those kinds of things, how in the world can we expect our children to to achieve on the levels that they should? So, if I had a magic wand, I think one of the things I'd wave it for is to have more people in the school systems that are yes, certainly concerned about the academic performance of of our students, but even before that, concerned about their emotional and mental health well being. That those basic needs are met. That they're safe, that they're able to gain access to the resources that they need to be successful in the school system. Right. Judge Ashanofi? What Dr. Brantley, really everyone on this panel is saying, I want to add agreement and also add this. You know, in the court system, we see what happens when our young people intersect in the court system. I see young people being charged as adults because they are engaging and involved in areas that are dangerous, involving weapons. We could have an entire channel just on the topic of our youth in the criminal justice system. And I know Mr. Akbar will probably say many things that I, judicial canons, prevent me from saying, but I'll say it this way. We have got to be involved with our young people, especially our African-American young people. This is an area that I'm very involved in in my local community as my husband is. My particular way of involvement is mentoring. You know, I will try to get involved with a family uh, that needs, you know, our young people need to know that they are cared for, they are loved, they have, they're going through so much. You know, when I, when I talk to my mentees, especially those in high school, and I hear what's going on in their families, I don't know how they're standing. There are young people that are going through so many challenges, whether it's, again, health issues, family issues, abuse issues, poverty issues, there's a lot going on. So support has to come from, yes, the schools, but within the family unit, which may be dysfunctional, And but we need to get our pastors involved, our, our community involved. My way is mentoring. There's many, many ways that we can show our young people that, that we care about them. But the individuals that I see in the criminal justice system, whether it's through juvenile court or drug court, they've been through a lot. And there hasn't been that sense of attention and, and that the foundation of family. When you hear about what's going on in their families, again, there's so much that they're dealing with. So this is a loaded topic, but for those who are listening to your podcast, just know that each of us can do something. Each of us can help someone, uh, whether it's through a church-based program, a community-based, there's, so each of us can do something and not get overwhelmed. Get involved in your, in your, with, with a young person. There's, there's a lot of different organizations that are helping our youth, or it could be someone that you know that needs mentoring and, and a little more attention, a little more guidance. School social workers, my husband's a school psychologist by training. They have large numbers of young people that they can't always get to. So 
So again, there has to be a multi-level involvement in a young person's life. Or I know you could probably say more than I can say. I know you represent many of the young people that get themselves in trouble. Yeah, and I was going to shift to Attorney Akbar because obviously, like Judge Ashinafi said, you work right on the front lines with these individuals who have these charges. So what are some things that you would like to see as far as changes being made in the criminal justice system? I think um, Judge Ashinafi Richardson um, hit it right on the head. It's a multi-layer approach. And one of the approaches have to be our community getting involved uh, with the people you know that ultimately ends up in the system so so we like to kind of look back and say like why is this happening to these kids or why are they getting this time or why are they getting arrested and not really looking at what we can do up front to kind of address the things that 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 lead them into those situations even in, in my career as a criminal defense attorney i've only recently started having real conversations with clients and when i say real conversations like you know the, the 16 year old or the 15 year old charged with armed robbery i'm now having conversations like look man what's your plans what do you want to do what are you going to do once you get out of this residential program or if you go to prison, you know, God forbid, you know, what what happens next? Um, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Um, you know, so I hate that I, I'm having those conversations when they're already in a tough situation. But I'm also learning, like, like um, the judge said, you know, mentorship. So now, like trying to stop the kids before they get into the system as well. So one of the ways of changing our system is trying to um, stop it, trying to trying to keep kids out of the system. Um, and, and like I said, there's so many different layers to it, but that that's one of them. Also, working within the system to change the system. And that's bringing attention to, you know, different perspectives. Um, like, you know, I think Mike Wallace said earlier, like we, we have to bring different perspectives into these systems because people, the traditional judges that you see, they're 60 plus white males, have no idea what it's like to be in a home where, you know, like we were saying that, that you know, they don't have a meal um, once they leave school, have no idea what it's like you know, for the 16 year old boy to have to take care of his four siblings, you know, mom coming in and out. Like, so with all those layers to it, we have to change the perspective. So we have to speak up. And even if, I mean, that, that doesn't take a judge to do it. That takes all of us to, to be able to go into courts and say, hey, like, let, let's look at it from this perspective. Like, can we address it this way in order for, you know, in order to, to avoid pr a prison sentence? Because the prison sentence is not going to change these circumstances once this kid goes home. So, you know, the probation, like, like all of these things. So if we can change the perspective and look at things differently, like within the system and also work on things without the system, I think I think it brings I think that that's where the change starts. Um, and I appreciate, you know, Sergeant Wallace being on here and, and talking about the sheriff's the sheriff office here in Leon County, because I think they're ahead of their time and in, in, in a good way. Um, because it's not all about lock them up and throw away the key uh, with that sheriff's office. And, and, and Sheriff McNeil had, you know, a couple of years ago, did a press conference said, look, I'm going to give you the opportunities to not end up in the system. But if you do wrong, you're going to end up in the system. You know, I mean, and, and it's, it's, it's a multi, it's a, it's a, it's an approach that's, that tells you like, I care about you, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a, but I'm a, I'm a love you in a way that I got to do my job at the same time. Um, so I'm going to get you the job. I'm gonna get you mentorship. I'm gonna, um, you know, teach you a trade. 
I'm gonna I'm do all I can so you don't come here, but I also have to do my job. And so, so they get it in that sense. So, you know, policing is not going anywhere. Criminal justice system is not going anywhere. But what we can do is change the perspective and change how we handle it um, in order to, at, 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 as best as we can, avoid getting to those situations. And thank you so much because I agree and I'm actually going to use that to shift into Sergeant Wallace because he was talking about the differences between that local and that national perspective right in Tallahassee and Leon County we are very fortunate to have the leadership of Sheriff McNeil if you don't know him he is an amazing man and he really does care about this community but Sergeant Mike if you can talk to us a little bit about what are some policing things that maybe you're seeing in other parts of our state or you know on a national scale that that do need to change maybe they're not models you know that we're implementing but things where you can see improvements being made all right so everybody put your seatbelt on um this is going this may this may shock some folks black and brown people probably usually represent somewhere around 13 percent of the population but when you drive around anywhere usa particularly in the south and you're you're shocked or you're honored to find a black or brown deputy sheriff or police officer, and you you almost look at that black or brown police officer as a unicorn, therein lies a big part of the problem. Now, who do we blame? I don't know if we spend a bunch of time in blaming folks. Let me give you the world according to Mike Wallace being a training officer and being in this business for a long time. Most of the way I operate as a law enforcement officer, one, comes from how I was raised as a young man, as a Wallace male by the Wallace men of my family, long before I even knew that I was going into law enforcement. 80, 90% of how I operate now as a law enforcement officer was how I was raised. The other 10%, 20% is how I was raised within the profession by my mentors within the profession. I think you guys see where I'm going. I learned most of how to treat people in law enforcement from, quite honestly, the people who raised me up in this thing in little old Gaston County of how to really treat people. Well, if you don't have those people that are there to mentor you through some things and you're just going by how you were raised, that's what we're going to get. So if you were raised and you don't know how to treat black or brown folk, or if you were raised and you don't understand compassion, or if you were raised and Christ wasn't in your life, service wasn't in your life, it's going to be very hard for you to understand true service just from what you're going to get in professional development. However, when I teach as an academy instructor, as an adjunct instructor at the academy, and I sit and I look and less than 5% of every class I teach look like like me. I'm, I'm, I'm saying I don't even see my replacement when I retire and who I, whom I'm teaching. And then when I go into the grocery store and my young mothers and fathers tell my, my, my young black and brown children, here, take him, he's being bad. And my, and my young children are hiding from me, black police officer, black deputy sheriff, and they're scared of me just by the sight of me. And my young men and women that have the ability to be law enforcement officers, but the negativity that comes out of their mouth just by the thought of going into the profession. We have a systemic issue and it we can immediately start chipping away with it if we can start just like we go about our best and brightest. We go after our five-star athletes, we go after our best and brightest, go into the STEM 
uh, areas. We go after our best and brightest to go into business and industry. We as black and brown folks and, spe and very specifically women, we have got to start identifying our young people that have the aptitude and the desire for service and start sending them and guiding them to into law enforcement ways of law enforcement and public safety because we are mis we are underrepresented and in that that in turn will start changing some things on the inside countrywide because truly i know that particularly for my military service i've served with some people that were raised to hate people that don't look like them. And when you get in those foxholes and when you get into tough situations, the love for your brother, your brother in arms, that'll come out when you when when it when the going gets tough, when people are are in those trenches. Uh, those are the things that that will overcome. But I I really think that I would love for us to see more aggressively see our our local law enforcement officers embrace our young black and brown children and do more to embrace them and say that hey it is okay to want to be a, a guardian and a, a guardian of your community by way of law enforcement. Right. Jason, I feel like they're giving you a run for your money today when they're talking about all the different community building that should take place. Do you have mm. anything that you would like to add as far as where you think we are now and where community building needs to shift to? I, I probably have too much to say. I'm going to try to keep it <laughs> succinct, right? And there was some, some amazing points that were made. But again, it, it goes back to the beginning, right? Um, the Atlantic wrote a piece uh, some time ago talking about the ability is to escape poverty if you're black or brown in certain cities across the, uh, the country, right? There's a less than 5% chance to escape poverty in cities like Atlanta, Charlotte, New York, Miami, if you were born black. This is not, this is a study by MIT. It's not a study by Jason, right? So when we talk about those socioeconomic disadvantages, right, you have to look at things at a different level. And we talk about policies to change community. So we have to listen differently to show up differently. If we understand that this person born into this situation has a less than 5% chance of coming out of the situation, maybe we need to look at the policy that address what happens if a person comes out of the community in, in commits crime. And I give this example, and we would not say that people were born evil, but if you look at the situation, to, to Sergeant Mike's standpoint, um, that 13% of the population represents so much of the prison system. So I, I, I give this example all, a lot. Think if you have two cages of mice, right? Same number of mice, but cage A has enough food, enough water, and spin wheel, all that for all the mice to eat and be merry. Cage B has enough food for one. What do you, gonna, what do you think is going to happen in cage B? They're going to fight for survival going to kill. They're going to do what they can do to survive. Be a cage be of mice innately criminal and inhumane? No, they don't have access to the resources to survive. And that's what goes on systematically across this country, right? So that's that 16-year-old that attorney Akbar was talking about that has to raise four children in the home while mom is trying to work three and four jobs. It's not, he's not innately criminal. He has, the, he has no access to employment. He has no access to equitable schools. He has no access to transportation. So what does this person do? Whatever the streets will provide for that young man to do to make sure his family 
eats, right? It is not like, oh, he can go into this job and make enough to help supplement that. So these activities are not innately criminal. It's about survival for the most part. And they see this is the access or the opportunity that I can say, you know what? I was able to get $100, $1,000 to put on this plate, right? So folks can eat in the house. We can have lights. We're not sleeping six to a room and different things like that. And the cycle continues. So now this person goes to judges' chambers and, and, and is talking about why they keep coming back. They get that first criminal conviction. Who is going to hire them now? What opportunities do they have to succeed? Because there's not like the Stanford boy who the judge in that case said, well, we don't want to ruin his life. Well, I'm sorry. You ruined that woman's life. You raped. So when we think about community and policies, now we need to think about how we create law that impact the least of these, not to Dwight's point, change all the tires. Look and listen to the least of these. And I, I, I really want to go on a quick tangent. Senator Bullock said something about school access and programs. One of the simple things that we can do is when we're listening differently, stop scheduling these meetings all at the same time for the middle school, elementary school, and high school. I'm sorry. If you have a kid in all three schools, you're not going to be able to show up. Uh, I, you just can't. It's only one person right. or two people. <laughs> <laughs> in three different schools. But we have to think differently on how we create these policies, how we create legislation and impact the systematic trauma that has been happening for centuries. This is not like a new thing. This is continues to happen. If we don't change how we look at the policies and where specifically impact, we'll never have, have change. And Jason, it's so funny that you uh, said the thing about the school meetings being all at the same time, because yes, if you're a parent, you literally, and you have one in each of those levels, you literally got to pick and choose, okay, which of my kids is doing <laughs> the least worst, you know? And so what, neglect the other one just so you can get to the one that probably needs more attention, you know, and it's not fair. So thank you so much for bringing up all those valid points. Judge Ashinafi. Wanted to add this, um, one of the shifts of thinking that is occurring in the court system is the seeing in it it's a shift of thinking in that treatment courts are now being funded and supported by our lawmakers and that is in turn be, is allowing funding to occur within the court system so for instance in our circuit we have a mental health court and what happens is once the person says i will focus on my mental health issues get the treatment that I need, that charge will, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, will actually be dismissed at the end of a successful course of treatment. Uh, if you're a veteran and you have committed crimes connected to PTSD, substance abuse, then you get in a veteran's court and then at the end of treatment, that case, that charge will be dismissed. Uh, we have felony drug court. If the person commits to treating their meth addiction, heroin addiction, whatever type of drug addiction, they have at the end of the, again, to usually a one-year commitment in all of these treatment programs. But what I've enjoyed seeing is that our lawmakers, the, the sh there has been a shift of thinking that incarceration is not the answer to mental health issues or substance abuse issues. Treatment is, and they are actually funding these programs. Veterans Court, it's changed so much that even if a person has been dishonorably discharged from their vet service, they can still go into treatment court, which is a big shift again in thinking. When a, a felony is dismissed, that's a second chance for a person because if you have a felony on your record, it's very difficult to get employment. I did want to throw that in that the shifting is happening. It may happen slowly. Mr. Akbar said that we can change things 
things from within the system because of engagement. So I want to just say to those who've been involved in this shifting of thinking in the criminal justice system, this is a huge area which is now receiving more funding and 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 the legislature in Florida is continuing to fund treatment courts. And again, we can't take that for granted. So I wanted to throw that in. Great. Thank you. Senator Bullard? Yeah, I just wanted to add, at the end of the day, one thing we, we didn't touch on, I think enough, is the changing of hearts and minds. To, to go back to Jason's analogy, the unfortunate reality is that if those two cages of mice, if one, if cage B was black mice or was perceived to be rats instead of mice, society would definitely apply a different uh, level of treatment uh, to cage B for that reason. And we have to, we have to fundamentally change that. An example I would give is that if you remember a few years back, Olympic swimmer Ryan Lockie got in trouble in Asia for causing chaos during one of, you know, during the Olympics. And at the age of 32, uh, newscasters got on TV and said, well, this kid uh, just made mistakes. But we all remember uh, that 17-year-old Trayvon Martin didn't get that same level of latitude. And when we're living in a society where someone at the age of 32 can be referred to as a kid, or most recently, uh, the young lady who assaulted the kid in New York, um, who was 22 and the child was 14, yet news was like, well, you know, she referred to herself as I'm a young kid. You assaulted a 14-year-old and you need to understand and be be accountable for that. But we have to begin to view, you know, if we're going to apply the the concept of childhood to children, then it needs to be a universal application that cannot somehow shift when you see a 12 or 14 year old black child and you view them as an adult and always view a 12 or 14 year old white child as a child. And that is unfortunately the world we kind of live in at this moment where we're not viewing people through a lens of humanity, universal humanity that allows people to be viewed as people where they're at. Instead, we view them again through the, the myths and the legends and the and the ideas that we've created in our minds as to who they are based on the color of their skin. And, uh, you know, Mutaki touched on the fact that we, there's notable progress we're moving and we're shifting. But in order to keep that moving in the right direction, we have to keep moving in that right direction. And I cannot say, I cannot leave this space without recognizing that we backslid tremendously over the last four years under the previous administration into viewing people in in a different light. And so if we're going to talk about the inaugural of this current administration, we have to, as community, agitate and push this administration to make considerable progress in, in a different direction so that we can move. And Senator Bullard, if you will jot down, you just spoke a second ago on breaking down myths associated with different cultures, different races and ethnicities. If you can jot that down, because I'm actually going to circle back to that. And I would love for you to be able to touch on some ideas and suggestions of how we can do that. Because I know you and I were actually talking about that offline. I would love for you to be able to share it with our audience, our listeners. Dr. Cicely, we have been talking a lot about shifting. We keep hearing the word shifting. We keep hearing the word perspective. And so we know that comes from people's minds, their views, their thoughts, their beliefs. Can you talk to us a little bit about how hard it is to shift and the challenges that come with actually shifting people's mindsets and their behaviors. Wow, that's a big one. Um, We've talked already about the fact that we all have a lens through which we view society. We all are products of our own environments. And that, I mean, I think that all of us can benefit from taking a a pause and kind of examining our own sets of biases, our own expectations. Um, But one thing that I was taught in my my therapy training, and it's something that I have tried to adopt, obviously I'm, I'm still a work in progress as well, but I try to adopt it in the ways that I deal with other people is rather than having making assumptions and rather than having this judgmental stance about this person A is going to, has the potential to do this and person B does not, I try to take a more curious stance. And I think that's something that we 
we can do across the board when dealing with other people in general, you know, having a curious stance, wanting to know more about a person's experience, wanting to know more about what they have and what they're lacking in, why it is that they see the things that they do, the ways that they see them. I think when we have a curious stance, we allow room for growth. We allow room to close gaps between ourselves and those other people. Whereas when we make judgments, we're automatically assuming that someone else's differences are going to keep us kind of apart and that it may limit them or it may advantage them in some other way. So one of the major things that I think we can do to, to help that shift is to have that more curious stance, to listen more and to kind of check our judgments at the door more frequently so that we can be available to hear what others have to say and to uh, not miss opportunities for growth and not miss opportunities to help increase awareness about so many of the things that we've talked about here today about the different starting places that we that we all have that the children that we work with all have and when we talk about unity you know there there is progress that we have to acknowledge but there's such a long way to go and we will not get there if we're all stuck in our own places and unwilling to see others you know with the same grace and with the same opportunity for growth that that, that we would like to be viewed as well right thank you and judge ashanafi and um taki dr cicely just spoke to us a second ago about opportunities for growth and sometimes it can be difficult to take advantage of those opportunities when there's challenges or obstacles in the way can you talk to us a little bit about the challenges or obstacles that you're seeing within the criminal justice system well right now you know and i'm going to be very specific what i'm seeing daily is the uh, aftermath of the COVID crisis. Right now, we are seeing people who are going, for instance, I have landlord-tenant cases where uh, people have lost their jobs and they cannot find employment and they can't pay their rent or mortgage. And so we are, we are in the midst of a housing crisis and um, the current government has extended protection from evictions now through the end of March. A big part of what I'm doing currently is sharing with tenants in particular community resources because they're not aware. I get surprised, you know, you would think that there's so much information coming out, but uh, in court I do meet people who have no idea about resources available to them whether a community action agency or Leon County Cares, which actually provide grants for housing. So big part of what I do every day is speaking to people, having landlord-tenant clinics, sharing resources, even a basic phone number, 211, that connects people. So a big part of what the courts are doing, at least I, I can only speak for myself, what I'm doing is, especially for um, poor or middle individuals with economic issues, I was about to say middle class, everyone is feeling the crunch. And so uh, a big part of what we can all do is share information because information is power. Resources that are out there, I do that every day. Another observation in the court system is the decline of mental health for all of us. I believe our country's heading into a mental health crisis. We are overloaded, overwhelmed, down, and it, it, our kids are feeling it. But to Dr. Brantley's point, we have got to be understanding that there that people are going to have clinical depression right now they may not be performing at top levels and we're heading it's it's only going to get worse but the more we talk about it the more we address it and i also share information about mental health resources um, i see more people who are home i see i'm seeing more domestic violence issues people self-medicating with drugs and alcohol because 
family members are just driving them crazy because they've been quarantined. And so I see this every day. And a big part of what I do is myself educating myself about what is out there to help my community. What is that? And sharing it. Even if I can, my average docket right now has increased because we don't have trials. So the, the, the dockets are increasing in the criminal justice system. This is going to take a little time to, to um, even out. But while I've got people on a Zoom call, I bring these things up. You know what? It sounds like you need to call this resource. And I have a resource sheet that I email privately to that person. My drug court participants, I share information about all sorts of things. And I personally create these resource information. So I'm going to end there. We've covered a lot of ground, but fundamental is just do what you can to those who are listening to this podcast. Do what you can. It could be just helping your neighbor next door. All of us can do something and love thy neighbor. And don't get overwhelmed and do what is comfortable for you. But we must help each other. We must think about each other. We must, you know, reach a hand out. And it, and it, and it could be at whatever level is comfortable for you. Right, exactly. Yeah, everybody has something that they can't do. Mm-hmm. Saki, what about you? Are you seeing any challenges or obstacles? I, th- I think one of the obstacles that we're dealing with now is just kind of the, the leftover Trump Trumpism. <laughs> and, and so in the state of Florida, we have a governor who's a, a Trump junior, who's trying to create legislation that's taking us steps backwards when it comes to criminal justice. One of the things that he's proposing is this, I call it an anti-protest bill, um, and he's hiding behind um, it being like a pro-law enforcement, when really it, it's not, you know, it's not encouragement for law. It's not anything that's going to give any extra protection to law enforcement, um, but it's meant to scare people that want to that want to protest and cry out for Black Lives. This bill is giving enhancements um, for certain things if you are protesting. Um, it's turning what would be a misdemeanor into a felony. It's making people stay in jail, um, like first appearance required. So you can be out. It could be three of us that's peace- peacefully protesting whatever issue it is, and then you get one person to show up. Um, and it could be a, 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 a you know somebody that's that's purposely coming to cause trouble that's not even standing for what you're standing for. And if that person throws a rock, for example, um, then all everybody who's out there can end up with the felony. Um, you can't get a state job. You know all of these things that's in there. So what it's doing, it's one is 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 creating more criminals. Like for you know people that's you know want to protest and then they they're going through the system. Um, where they shouldn't. And two is putting fear in people um, that's willing to advocate uh, for black lives and to change the system. Um, so that's an example of an obstacle, but we're going to continue to have, the more that we have a, a, a progressive bench um, and even progressive law enforcement, um, the more that we're going to have people like DeSantis to do legislation to, to, to try to block some of those progressive ideas. So, you know, so it's mandatory minimums. When they start seeing judges saying, hey, instead of um, giving this person prison for X amount of years for having a substance abuse problem, now these judges can't do what they want to do or can't do what's right because there's legislation in place to say that you can't do it. That, that's requiring a certain amount of time. So until we get our legislation, our government um, on the same page, as far as the progressiveness and changing the criminal justice system, I think they will always be an obstacle um, to, to a lot of that change. And it's not just in the state of Florida, it's throughout the country that we're seeing, you know, these, these legislators, and I know um, Senator Bullard 
can can kind of give you know examples even when he was in there because they hear it so they say oh this judge you know don't want to put people in prison all right like i'm gonna put some legislation in place to say this judge have to put people in prison oh this prosecutor suddenly um don't want to prosecute or don't want to do death row uh, or, or, or do the death penalty, you know, as a policy. All right, well, I'm gonna put legislation in place. And even, you know, we saw that in, in Orange County with, um, Aramis. Um, she's, you know, just said as a policy, she didn't think death, you know, the death penalty is right. So the governor came in and took all her death penalty cases because they wanted to like enforce what they think is right. Um, so I think an obstacle will always be politics. And, and until we have like the right government and legislation, senators and all that in, uh, I think they will continue to be an obstacle in some of the progressive uh, progress that, that's being made in the criminal justice system. Thank you, Mitaki. And it's great that you mentioned Senator Buller because I actually was going to jump over to him. Since you mentioned the anti-protest bill, we also have the bill that's being proposed now for the minimum wage and where they're trying to make it to where convicted felons or kids under the age of 17 can't get the state mandated uh, 15 that everybody voted for. So Senator Buller, can you also talk to us about some challenges and obstacles that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, you spoke to it right there is the notion of discriminatory policy. Just to, to shed more light on it. So uh, in 2020, it's a 60% requirement to pass a constitutional amendment here in the state of Florida. That means that 60 plus percent of people have to approve a measure in order for it to pass. So that's a that's a threshold higher than the most normal policy that you that you're trying to implement. And still, you have a state senator uh, out of the Sarasota area who's now trying to propose policy to obstruct that. The idea that somehow those who committed you know uh, felonies in the past or children of a certain age or uh, just be basically trying to create loopholes. Hard to hire, which they yeah. haven't even defined. Right, that disincentivize businesses from paying people their 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 actual wage, right? And it ties into the the protest bill because the protest bill, uh, in its initial framework, was initially proposed in September. Uh, this is before January sixth. Uh, this is right after a summer of of protests around George Floyd. Footnote, by the way, Black Lives Matter has been nominated for the, the Nobel Peace Prize. So folks saw that. Are, are are you know? So you can throw it out the window that this is some sort of violent extremist group like people try to try to frame it, frame Black Lives Matter as, but it goes back to the point that I made, made around this. It's this idea that Blackness is inherently criminal, right? So it's like, if we if we say Black Lives Matter, just the mere fact that we're saying Black, ah, that in itself is the inherent problem because Black lives cannot matter because look at the statistics. And and it's so, it's so fascinating because we live in this world, and Jason brought this point up, 13% of the population Yet in the state of Florida, 49% of the incarcerated population are Black. So rather than say that is the problem, right? Like the idea that this percentage of the population is, is being overrepresented in the criminal justice system as the problem, you have people to look at the problem as, well, geez, if there's that many of them in prison, they must be out here committing that many crimes. Right? And that is the shift that we we need to make the idea that the system itself has become inherently problematic and 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 has you know gobbled up people who are undeserving of it that it has been overzealous in its treatment of things like poverty mental health race over a myriad of years right is the problem and we have to state that with with statements of absolution that it's not a question of this particular community being overzealous about 
the pursuit of crime, whereas it's the system in its treatment of particular members of the community as it relates to things that probably should not be criminalized in the first place, like homelessness, like drug use, like all the, again, mental health as an example. And so we have to, uh, again, as a society, recognize the innate humanity in somebody. An example being, in, and Judge Ashinafi uh, brought this up, right? If you have somebody who served this country, gone to Iraq, done a double tour, you know, is now suffering from PTSD, you now throw this person back into quote unquote normalized society, right? And act as though a truck backfiring or a chair being, you know, being thrown down or a brick falling won't trigger something within that person that may inadvertently make that person act out violently because that is what the PTSD and trauma has caused this person and not look at that holistically and instead treat that as if, oh, well, you know, you're supposed to be well-adjusted. You know what I'm saying? It's not like we just threw you in a violent situation for two and a half years and now want you to come work at Walmart like everything is fine and dandy, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like, you know, like human beings do not work that. And so- but Senator Buller, just real quick, even something as simple as fireworks, what people don't know is fireworks, yeah. like on the 4th of July on New Year's, traumatize our veterans. Absolutely. And so what, I, and so what I'm saying is that like, that's the ultimate policy piece that we need to, to begin to work on is how we view one another. Like it is, you know, the idea that somebody can raise a child to the age of 18 or beyond. Right? And look at their child as if that child can do no wrong. Even in the midst, and I say this as a former teacher, your child be out there doing some wrong. Yeah, we, we get that. But it's like the, the idea that a, a parent can raise that child to that point with this sense of innate humanity that this child is, and I will allow this child to grow and be the beautiful human being that they allow themselves to be, but then not apply that same application to a 16 or 17 year old who they don't know is part of the problem. And we as society have to fix that internal, internal problem that we have of not viewing people as their whole selves, or more importantly, asking the important question about what makes a person get to that point. To Jason's point around the notion of, of this, if you have a 16-year-old raising four, four children because their parents can't work and their mother hasn't left any food in the refrigerator, no money on the counter to go buy the pizza, and that person now has to go do something to go get that pizza to go bring back to those four kids, you know, we sit there and look at the act like, oh man, they, they stole bread and cheese and, and meat out of, the, out of the grocery store. How dare they? They committed a a criminal act and not look at the whole picture as to why or the conditions that created the necessity for, for doing that, that's that's a societal flaw. And we can no longer afford to keep putting that pressure on that 16-year-old without looking at the causation and what society can do to fix uh, those causes. Right. Agreed. Definitely. It definitely is a holistic problem and you need holistic solutions for that. So thank you for sharing those things. Sergeant Mike, if I can jump over to you, you talked a little bit before about the challenges and obstacles that um, the law enforcement policing face just by not having a, divorce, a, a diverse law enforcement force. Are there any other challenges and obstacles that are experienced throughout law enforcement and policing? And then if so, how can those obstacles be overcome? And then also, how can law enforcement really work with the community to strengthen and bridge that divide between unity equity? So it's like a two-part question. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work backwards. Of course, our, our All In Leon initiative, we think of it as the, the flagship and the model for the rest of the country to follow. The leadership of bringing, making it everyone's responsibility to just have a, a pride of, of making Leon 
Allen County a safer place to work, live, and play falls on us all. I think some of our challenges are, are some of our obvious challenges are that we do have a national narrative that uh, black and brown people are not getting a fair shake when it comes down to boots on the ground encounters with law enforcement. And so some of the things that we are doing locally is that you guys, everyone knows that I've spent the last three and a half years in uh, community relations. Well, uh, with that coming moving forward, I've been, and this is not about me, but I've been promoted. And now my job is I'm in charge of training for our entire agency. And we're hoping that that, that translates into me, to me being able to convey to all of our men and women on both the law enforcement side and the correction side, the importance to our, all of our curriculum, all of the, the training that we do, we will always, uh, there will always be a component of understanding how important uh, being able to convey to the community that we, at, we are part of you, we love you, and we want the best for you. And that ethos of we are guardians of our community, that is across our platform of all of our all of our training components, whether it be driving, driving the component, whether it be our firearms component, whether it be our use of force, all of our use of force components will have an, a component of one de-escalation, having you having the tools of not having to use force. So uh, all that's only deadly force, and using the force uh, necessarily to contain an incident and uh, bring a resolution that can be amicable to all and we will be able to live to deal with it another day. And that, so that's something that has been placed on uh, me that I'm, I'm very honored to take on. And I think it's, it's something that uh, the sheriff is making sure that we are going forward, moving into the next the next few years that that's those are our plans that we're we're going to we're going to train our way our 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 approach is to train our way out of what we have identified as uh maybe some not so good practices decades decades if not hundreds of years of bad police practices that have now come home to roost so our our opportunities are our training and uh, utilizing our our community involvement the, the sheriff has a an advisory board uh, built up of a cross section of of uh, community stakeholders that are advising him of what they're seeing and what they what they understand about our policies and what they have and they're going to also be reviewing our use of force. And so that coupled with not only the, the deputies and law enforcement reviewing what we do, but having outside eyes reviewing what we do and have and actually valuing what what our outside partners are saying about us and it mattering to us. And so that all-in initiative is truly uh, not just lip service is what we live, is what we believe every day. And truly, I am honored to even be a part of the, the team that's that's going to, we are, right? there's no doubt about it, there's no failure in this. We are going to be the, the best in the in the world at making sure that Leon County is, is uh, 
taking advantage of training our ways, our way out of some bad police practices. And so our opportunities, our future's bright. But I think the the one thing that the biggest, our biggest Achilles heel for Leon County is the fact that we do have a horrible national narrative that people on both sides of the equation are dealing with. And so we we try and prepare our deputies to understand there are some people that are out there that are hurting, that are scared, and, and that there are some options. So we have some uh, uphill battle to, to fight, but Anything worth having is worth fighting. Exactly. And as we begin to close our conversation, you were talking a little bit before about the national narrative. And so what are some ways, you know, when we look at where we are now and where we want to go to promote that unity, that equity, what are some things that community residents can do to help support law enforcement and vice versa to really kind of help break down that national narrative, but really work to strengthen the community? Do you have any advice or suggestions on how those two can work hand in hand for individuals who maybe don't serve on advisory boards? Yeah, I think that um, I I would tell anyone, if you don't see law enforcement in your neighborhood, give, give us a call, give the sheriff a call, give any, give us a call at the sheriff's office. If you're not seeing us in your communities, give us a call because we need to be. Because at the end, at what really uh, folks need to understand, your local law enforcement, sheriff's office, TPD, we work for you. And if you're not seeing us as a part of your community, if we're not viable parts of the community, not just when things are bad, but if we're not there when things are good, then there there's a problem. We are, we are, Absolutely. We we have the sheriff's office. We have a component to where uh, people can call and just have a deputy come out to their to uh, neighborhood gatherings, uh, community crime watch, community, any community meetings. We will come out, send a deputy out and engage in that. An- another one of the big things we talk about the schools, all of our middle schools and high schools have school resource deputies who would love nothing more than to get more involved in what their children that are in their schools outside of their schools are involved in. And so I think from our civic groups and our civic groups, our church, find out who your deputies and your police officers that work in your area. Call and ask, who, hey, who are my deputies? Who are my officers that work in my area? I'd like to meet them. And I know that our sheriff and our police chief, they are committed if you, you know, if you don't see them, call and ask and they will make it a point to send those men and women to you so you will get to meet who they are. And a lot of times when you open those doors and open those dialogues, because at, at the end of the day, even the men and women in uniform, they're not just going to barge their way into your neighborhoods or into your lives if they don't feel welcome. But I will tell you from a person in uniform, there is nothing better and someone saying, you know, Miss Janie on the south side, seeing me ride by, wave me down, say, hey, baby, come here, get, get you a glass of this sweet tea. Come here, let me talk to you. And Miss Janie going to get a, a visit every day because, one, I love sweet tea. And two, <laughs> it ain't nothing like talking to Miss Janie. You know what I mean? So there is there is so much work that we can do. And I think uh, Senator Bullock hit it on the head, just the love 
the love of each other is what's going to get us through this thing. But I think those olive branches extended from both sides of the fence. And it's a shame that we're even talking about it as if they're different sides because we're all in this thing together. But definitely from a law enforcement perspective, particularly when you see law enforcement, you you know it when there's a young man or young woman in law enforcement that are that's looking awkward. That's not used... You know when it's a young white male, young black, white female that's not used to being around a whole bunch of black folk that may look nervous. Bring that chick. Come in. Come in, child. Come in. Come on. We ain't going to hurt you. Come on. We're not going to eat you. Come on in. And that's, those are the things I learned being a black training officer when we would hire white officers in Quincy. Those were the things, if you can imagine Quincy being one of the blackest counties in the state, we would have white officers that would come in would look like a deer in the headlights, but then they would fall in love with the place when they got past their fears and and it wasn't so much fears it was the unknown and those are the things those are the cultural things that if we don't if we don't get more uh black and brown people in law enforcement those are the things that you can't put in a book that you can't quite translate into the that field training experience that these law enforcement officers get And, and so um I encourage our communities to embrace these law enforcement officers because Mutaki said it best. Law enforcement is not going to go anywhere. Law enforcement is going to be there. People don't want them to go anywhere either. And most people don't. That's that's the reality. Most people don't. So what do we do? We need to build those relationships and build on. I think we have a fairly good relationship here. I just I just think we all need to work so hard to get it, particularly I our black young men, our black and brown young men, let's whatever we've got to do to get them out of the system before we have to arrest them. Before the gun violence just breaks my heart on almost on a nightly basis, because once that happens, intervention is too late. And so, and I can't help but feel like there's something we can do. And I just appreciate being here on that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. And I really appreciate you touching on the myths of law enforcement too, because some people really think that they're only there when something bad happens. And, you know, one thing that I love about our sheriff's department is that they're there on all occasions. They're there to support the community and uplift the community and attend community events, but they're also there to make sure that this community is safe and secure. Um, So thank you again for touching on the myths and also on touching about open dialogue because Senator Bullard will be touching on that in his closing in a few minutes. Before, I want to shift to Judge Ashinafi and Mutaki. You both were talking a little bit before about the challenges in the criminal justice system. So I wanted to get your thoughts and input on how we can really take, you know, what we're doing now, where we are now, and how do you move that place uh, forward to a place of equity and unity across the board? Because I know a lot of times people say, oh, the system is broken, you know, so what are some ways that everybody can work together for that? What I can share, and I'll be brief because I know our time is winding down on from the judicial branch some things that are happening are each judge is required to have diversity training and so we have locally that the judge teaches diversity training here in, in the second judicial circuit is judge Akins he teaches a wonderful class to judges um, he brings in another uh, co-faculty and he does an outstanding job and it's in small groups and um, it's very moving. And so, so many of the things that we've talked about here uh, happen. People share their experiences, open up, and um, it has helped. And this is a required course. We take it 
annually. There's also movement to try to raise uh, our awareness of uh, biases that we may have and address them. So for instance, you know, if a, a judge has to think about what biases am I bringing to the table what or to the bench and to actually address it and to leave those biases at the door. And they're def, uh, and this is being taught at the statewide level, again, because of the push by uh, attorneys uh, for judges to check these biases at the table. I was raised by a single father who was an educator. I didn't I didn't know that we were poor to middle class until really the benefit of hindsight, but you know, I I understand and that's why I care so much about individuals who have economic issues. I grew up with economic issues. For instance, when I was in college, I didn't have a car and I had to take the bus for for over a year. And I'll have people come to court and say to me, you know, my bus was late because of the rain and, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm late for court. I was very sensitive to that because I've been there and I can relate to the bus schedule when um, it was raining in particular. So, of course, I'm not going to issue a failure to appear when someone shows up late for court. Um, so my background has allowed me to be sensitive to those individuals who come from challenging upbringings. And the more judges that we can put on the bench uh, for are diverse, the better the experience for the judiciary, the better. Um, okay, another area I want to tell you about is I care about sentencing fairly. So whether I have a brown person or a white person or regardless of their skin color, they're going to be sentenced the same depending on the crime factoring in particular facts of their case. So whether someone's from FAMU or FSU on a small on a, on a misdemeanor case, and they're going to be sentenced fairly and this, and similarly, uh, I am sensitive to that as a brown judge. I'm going to also care about treating people with dignity and respect and not and not because I am a, a, a brown person who's sensitive to uh, the, the areas that we're talking about. I want to practice fairness, respect, and dignity for all people. And I practice that. I try to every day in the court system. And again, I was put here because people voted me in and continue to keep me in office because I try to keep my promise and I try to every day. So that's going to be my, my closing remarks. And um, again, it is a privilege to serve. And these panels, by the way, when I sit on these panels, I listen. I listen and I learn and it helps me expand myself, expand and learn so that I can be the best judge. And I'm tuned in. I'm tuned into what's going on. And I'm not just in an armchair, not plugged in what the issues are and what's going on within my community, my state, and my nation. So thank you to each panelist. I was honored to be here with each of you, and I've drawn something from something that you've said here today. Thank you, Judge. Amutaki, what about you? The challenges that you spoke on, how do you feel that they can be overcome to really help improve the system? Uh, I think there, there are three things that we can do to um, overcome these changes. I think one would be to be vocal about um, the changes that need to be made. Um, one of the things about me and law enforcement is that um, they know that I'm a critic, <laughs> um, but they also know that I'm somebody that they can call on to talk about necessary changes, to, to give ideas about necessary changes and ways to implement those changes. Um, so it's not enough for us to sit on the sideline 
and just like bark, you know, law enforcement is bad, which which that is, you know, not not the case. Um, but like it's necessary for us to be vocal about what we need to see and and help and assist on um, making those things happen. So that'd be one. Two is to use our political power. Um, Judge Ashanafi Richardson spoke about her being elected, about us changing the the, the bench, um, and not not only like the the bench, but also you know the sheriff is elected office. Um, the the chief of police is hired by um, city commissioners um, who are elected. County commissioners um, help guide what policies the sheriff's office is going to make. So they're they're elected. So we as um, black and brown people really need to, one, understand our political power and two, use it um, in, in, in a way that makes sure that people who are in these positions are, are speaking for us and about us. And last, I'll say we need to be the change. And when I say we need to be the change, that means that we need to, I'm sorry. Uh, when I say that we need to be the change, that means that um, we need to be the mentors. We need to be, um, you know, talking to these kids. We need to do what we can to get the guns off the street um, and 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 make sure that our communities um, know that we are present. Uh, one of the things that that often happens in the black community is that we reach certain levels and then we all of a sudden disappear from our community. So our, you know, young black boys, young black girls need to see us. Um, and again, like by seeing us, we we start being that change that we need to be in the system. Um, so I thank you for having this panel. I thank you for having me on this panel. Um, always great to talk about solutions and not just problems. Um, so I appreciate it. But. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for sharing that because all of you all know me. So, you know, I'm always about solutions. So I'm honored that you all are here. Senator Bullard, if we could shift over to you. Um, we talked a little bit about myths, getting rid of myths. How do you bring people to the table, start those conversations, have that open dialogue. So you can you talk to us a little bit about how we move from point A to point B to that place of equity and unity? Yeah, so uh, one thing that wasn't in my bio is that I taught history for 17 uh, years in, in Miami-Dade County Public Schools. And so we have to understand that we are living in a world uh, in which systems have done harm to black and brown people. That's a statement of fact. There is no getting around that. 1787, a group of men, predominantly white, I mean, not predominantly, all white, <laughs> absent of women, absent of people of color, uh, made decisions. And one of the first things they put in place was the dehumanization of Black people through the Three-Fifths Compromise. Um, that is that is what they put and memorialized in the Constitution. And the things that we're working to try and overturn through our actions and activism, et cetera, is, is part of that. But we also have to remember all the trauma that has been caused by the subjugation of black and brown people through a system that has that that was there to exclude them, right? So I just want to say that we have to root ourselves in the understanding that we're working against a construct that was not meant to be inclusive. So I say that to say that through the work that we do, we always have to carry that in the back of our mind because I think too often times people get enamored with the idea that everything's hunky-dory. That because I, you know, because I was born after 1965 or because I was, you know, went to a diverse school or because, you know, I didn't have to, you know, go pick up my food from, from the back of a restaurant through the back door, that everything is fine and dandy. And it is not. We are still working to deconstruct those constructs that have too often times harmed our people. So the solution 
solution I would leave folks with is operate from a, a vantage point of equity and necessity to overcorrect that bent tree that you talked about at the very beginning of this thing, Rebecca. You know, we're operating from a system in which that tree is bent. So we have to begin to straighten and continue to straighten that tree so that everyone can eat from it equally. But right now the tree, the tree started off bent. It didn't, it wasn't lagging, it was bent. It started off, right. it started off, you know, completely <laughs> bent to one side yeah. and there was a fence built around it so that only certain people could pick those apples, right? So we, we might've, at this point, we probably knocked down the fence, but now right. we're, in the, we're in the tree straightening phase of it. And so people, you know, whether it's, you know, more people being elected, whether it is a greater levels of engagement, like we saw in Georgia up there with Jason in terms of turning red states blue, whether it is, you know, voter registration, whether it is economic attainment, we always have to be operating from a sense of making sure that the system works best for everybody and that the system innately was designed not to work well for everybody. And a very simple solution that you suggested earlier when you and I were even speaking offline is the idea of talking circles. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah. So just talking with one another to understand each other's cultures. You know, Dr. I mean, Judge Ashanafi talked about being raised uh, from an East, East African background. There's like, even for Black people, we have to understand the distinctions within our own culture. You know, whether it be folks coming from the Caribbean, folks coming from the, the African continent, from the various regions of the African continent, what they're bringing to the table, what they're offering, and just a deeper understanding of one another, whether it be black, white, brown, you name it, uh, so that we can all collectively move forward. And so talking circles, talking circles is, is in effect a way to do it. You know, it's a fishbowl style conversation where instead of talking at each other, you're talking with each other. I'm in developing a sense of understanding. So that is a good first step. Okay, perfect. And um, continuing the conversation on community building, Jason, I'm going to shift up to you and see if you have any closing thoughts on the challenges that you spoke of and how progress can be made. So um, this is a community slash uh, therapy type of response. Um, I think Dr. Brantley will have uh, will appreciate this, right? Uh, and I'll start where I, I'll end where I began. You can't start. You can't solve a problem with the same mindset that you used to create it, right? Um, and this country has a history of cognitive dissonance. If I tell you the sky is green your whole life, and then all of a sudden says no, the sky is really blue, it's going to be really, 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 really hard for you to believe that the sky is blue. Since the founding of this country, as uh, Senator Bullitt said, the humanity of Black people has not existed. So even when we talk about law enforcement, we talk about like Black people have a cognitive dissonance around Blackness. It has a negative connotation in this country, all right? So we have to start from the beginning. We have to be okay with the elephant in the room and telling the true story. We can't say Columbus came to America and leave out the fact that murder, rape, pillaging, and stealing happen. We can't tell the story of Captain Morgan in Panama and say, oh, he's great explorer and leave out the fact that he killed, tortured, and the Panamanian people call him the devil. We cannot continue to tell this story and leave out these, the true story or the whole story. A therapist will tell you all the time, I can't help you unless you tell me the whole story, right? We can't put bits and pieces on it. We want to move forward. We have to be comfortable in listening and walking through the uncomfortable story, which is American, America's history, and then start from a 
is a space of, of healing and understanding this happened, right? If we talk about 1964, there were still lynchings in 1964. We know people who are alive today from 1964. Cicely Tyson just died. She was born in 1924. So those children that were seeing these atrocities and in, in their parents saying that a, a group less than, they teach that to their children. If we don't start from the beginning and to reprogram American society, we will be dealing with this for centuries and centuries to come. This is not something just started. We can't build unity without going to the root cause. This country, quote unquote, was founded in the late 1400s, beginning 1500s, right? We've been doing the same thing and expecting a different result. If we want to build, we have to start from a, a sense of truth. We have to be willing to hear different perspectives. We have to be willing to acknowledge things that happen. I, I won't go to a Holocaust survivor and say, oh, this happened, get over it. I'm not going to go to Native Indigenous folks and say, get over the Trail of Teals. I'm not going to do that. We're, I'm not going to tell a victim of rape or murder to get over it. So we can't continue to tell Black America to get over it and move forward. You have things that happen. You had a Black president, you have Oprah. It don't work like that. We really have to be willing to 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 swallow the ugly history and move forward and shift this dissonance that's been created by centuries. Well, Dr. Cicely, we gave you the hard task of closing and wrapping up because we have heard so many amazing suggestions on what communities can do, um, things that Jason just spoke on, on what leaders can do. Judge Ashin Mafi Mutaki, Senator Bullard spoke on it. But now we have the hard task of people. And how can we move people to a place of change? So obviously uh, communities can do everything. Leaders can do everything. Certain professions, law enforcement, legal profession can do everything that they can. But now we have to look towards ourselves. So in closing, can you talk to us a little bit about the shifting of behavior and how people can really move to a place of change. Jason spoke on it. Some behaviors have been ingrained for so long, they can be hard to break. So tell us how we can help ourselves, our friends, our family move to that place of change. That I think one of the main things is being intentional about, uh, you know, you know, being aware of that, that's something that we need to be doing on a regular basis. You know, there is no wrong time to help to close some of these gaps and to make progress. Um, and I think one of the ways that many of us, are, you know, all of us on this panel and many other folks who have, you know, uh, connections and networking groups where they have, you know, where their voice is already respected, use that privilege. You know, we talk so often about things, you know, white privilege as it relates to race, but we all have different levels of privilege. And I think if we use the privilege that we have as professionals or as people in certain, you know, disciplines or, or in different careers or as people who, you know, um, were raised with a different background or whatever the case may be, I think if we are intentional about recognizing, wait, I have a connection here. I have an in that someone else may not have. I'm going to use that in, not just for my own benefit, it, but for the benefit of the community and then as a society in general. Um, and I think something else that we can be aware of that um, I don't know if we we kind of touched on it a little bit today, but with with the history and with everything that has happened and all the intergenerational difficulty, I think something else that we can be aware of and kind of try to squash is this notion of respectability politics, that the 
people that all of the folks who are needing so many of so much of the support that we've talked about today that they have to speak away or look away or dress away or have a certain level of education or whatever in order to deserve the same amount of respect that I deserve or that you deserve. I think that when we do away with those those kinds of notions connected to respectability politics and needing to be at a certain level of assimilation, I think when we do away with those notions, then too, we can do more to close the gaps, to bring more unity, to help the community as a whole, and then to to continue on this path to progress. So yeah, I, I think those will be my closing comments. I'll stop there. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for sharing your experience and your advice and your guidance and your suggestions and your expertise. I'm so fortunate that each of you were able to join us for our podcast today. And for our listeners and our audience, for more information on today's guest, you can head over to ArmaniRay.com. We thank you for joining us for Start Now, a podcast to inspire, educate, entertain, empower, and inform. You have to start somewhere and you have to start sometime. So why not start now? We look forward to joining us next time. Be 